text for the sermon this morning comes from the book of Isaiah. We find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 9 this morning, as is our custom when we're observing the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We're turning to the book of Isaiah and working slowly through it, meditating upon the promises that we find in Isaiah uh, regarding our Redeemer. And in Isaiah chapter 9, we have this beautiful promise of the coming of the Messiah. And they're given various characteristics of this Messiah. So let's hear God's word this morning as we find it in Isaiah chapter 9, the first seven verses. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the, of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 9, the Lord gave his people a beautiful promise regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. We find that Isaiah 9 is, is continuing to, to build up to a climax. And this climax is accomplished by Isaiah telling us about numerous salvific promises, but not telling us about who is going to fulfill these promises. Isaiah in verses 1 and 2 tells us that the darkness of sin and judgment is going to be dispelled by a great light. But we're not told who that great light is. He tells us that the blessings of multiplication and joy are going to be given in verse 3. But he doesn't tell us who will do that. He tells us that the burdensome yoke of sin and the cruel staff of the shoulder are going to be destroyed in verse 4. And he tells us that the bloody garments of war are going to be burned in the fire in verse 5. By the time we get to, to verse 6, we, we should be begging to know who is going to accomplish all of this. Who is going to bring about these glorious promises? And the answer we are given by the Lord is the marvel and wonder of our redemption. 
We were told in Isaiah 6 that the king of glory sits in resilient majesty and splendor. He is so distinct from the rest of creation that that not even the heavenly seraphim who are perfect angelic beings can look upon him. They cover their eyes with their wings. And sinful man can only cry out, Woe is me, when they see this great God. And yet in Isaiah 7, we are told that the virgins shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. I'll give him a slight hint what we're given more detail in Isaiah 9. The Holy One of Isaiah 6. The Holy One of Isaiah 6 would become God with us. And Emmanuel would be that child who is born and that son who is given mentioned in Isaiah 9. This son would not only be a sign of, of Israel's deliverance as we saw in Isaiah 7. The Lord gave this line to Ahaz as a declaration that Judah is not going to be destroyed. But he would not just be a sign of Israel's deliverance. He would accomplish that very deliverance himself. He would be the very instrument of that redemption. He would be the messianic Davidic king bringing deliverance to all God's people. As we work through Isaiah 9 this morning, you'll see a comforting connection of the names of Emmanuel to his redemptive work he accomplishes in those first six verses of Isaiah chapter 9. Emmanuel is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And he is all these things as he accomplishes redemption for his people. So as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let us be moved to to both joy and faith as we consider the light that Emmanuel brings us. Before we consider the wonder of this light, we need to consider that sin, sin brings the gloominess of darkness. Isaiah 9, building on Isaiah 8, paints a very oblique picture. It says people are walking in darkness. It says people are living in the land of the shadow of death. Isaiah 8 tells us that this was not physical darkness. They were not actually living in the dark. But this is instead spiritual darkness caused by the sin of unbelief. You'll recall that the context to Isaiah 7 through 9 is that Ahaz was afraid that both Syria and Israel were going to come against Judah, and Judah and Jerusalem were going to be destroyed, and that there would no longer be a people of God there. The Lord called Ahaz to believe in him, to believe that he would provide them redemption. But Ahaz does not trust in the Lord. Instead, he goes to Assyria for help. 
He spurns the the promises of the Lord and he goes to Assyria for help. But Assyria would not end up helping them. Instead, they themselves would attack Judah and Jerusalem. So what we see here is that Judah, rather than turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, trusted in conspiracies. They trusted in mediums and, and wizards who proclaimed falsehood. And because of that... Naphtali and, and Zebulun, who stood directly in the path of an invading Assyrian army, would face the brunt of their wrath and judgment. They would be a people walking in darkness, and they would be a people living in the land of the shadow of death. Judas' failure to believe in God's promises, to believe in God's words, led to darkness falling upon the northern kingdom. We read in Isaiah 8, verse 21 through 22, that they will pass through the land hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish. They'll be driven into darkness. Sin always brings darkness. And unrepentant sin leads to deeper and deeper darkness, especially as whole nations are given over to sin. These are are the devastating consequences of our actions. And when chastisement and judgment come, we may find ourselves in complete darkness. Isaiah 8 through 21 through 22 paints such a bleak picture by pointing out this this growing frustration with the people. The judged people pass through a judged land looking for some hope, some deliverance from what they've just gone through. They look for some light. They pass through this land hard-pressed on every side. They, They were squeezed and exhausted. And in their devastating hunger, they added sin to sin by getting angry. In their anger, they they cursed God and the king. The God who they had not sought in times of peace and prosperity became the object of, of their wrath. The God who had called them to repentance and was long suffering towards them prior to sending judgment, was now deaf to their cries. We read that terrifying imagery that the people looked upward. We're not told what they saw when they looked upward, but we're told what they saw when they looked downward. They looked downward to the earth, and there was only darkness and gloom and the fact that we're not told what they what they saw when they looked upward implies to us that they too when they looked upward saw only darkness and gloom this is a people lost in their sin surrounded by a deep gloom and darkness these are the awful consequences to sinful actions these are the consequences to unbelief We reap what we sow, and when we sow sow sin, we thrust ourselves and this world into utter darkness. Israel here bore the rotten fruit of unbelief and eventually found that heaven was deaf 
and dark to our cries. As I've already said, Ahaz's ultimate sin in this text was that he did not trust in the deliverance of the Lord. Recall how in Isaiah 7, when the Lord told him to ask for a sign, Ahaz refused. He, under guise of religiosity, said, I will not ask, and I will not tempt the Lord. But what a wonder that God, even amid this great faithlessness, even amid this, this great period of unbelief, gives these, these beautiful gospel promises. That God, even amid this faithlessness, orchestrated his redemption and gave promises of deliverance. And as we come to the Lord's table this morning, let us see from Isaiah 9. And let us believe with faith that Jesus is the mighty God who dispels the darkness of judgment. Jesus is very God of very God. We are told in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, as our Redeemer, is God with us. And He, as our Redeemer, has been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And with that power and authority, He calls all men to come to Him for salvation. Verse 2 of our text says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. That light is this Emmanuel we read of here. This, This light that shone upon these people is the mighty God calling them to repentance and faith. Jesus is the light in the midst of the darkness of judgment. It's no coincidence that when Christ came into this world, it was at night, and his birth was heralded by the bright light of an army of angels. And Jesus is able to bring light to us as his people. And to this world in the midst of its darkness because he is the one who endured the three hours of darkness. And he was on that cross at Golgotha. He took upon himself the darkness of judgment. His gospel now proclaims a light to the whole world. It is a light which has a power to enlighten all those who by faith look upon him. John 1, 9 says of Jesus, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Yet isn't it true that sometimes this light, indeed it is a comforting light to us when when we behold it by faith. Sometimes we find the light uncomfortable. As it points out that judgment that we deserve for our sin. What a horrible thing it is that there are those who run from this light. Because they hate knowing the condemnation that this light brings. Yet in, in they're running from the, the condemnation of this light. They run from the salvation of this light. 
should not be like the fish in the depths of the ocean where there's no where no sunlight possibly can reach but when when a submarine comes and shines light on these fish that they they run from that light Instead, when we see the light, this light from God's word, we need to come to this light. When the light of God's word would condemn you and point out sin in your life, when you would experience that accusation of your conscience, when you would know guilt, do not spurn that. There are many today who, who stop their ears at the gospel for the condemnation it brings. It reminds them that they indeed are sinners. Sire shines a searching light onto their dark hearts. They run from it. But rather than run from it, let that light of, of condemnation be that which spurs you on to, to seek that light of salvation. Seek that light which shines into the shadow of death. Seek Christ who is that light of the world. Hear the wonder of our text here this morning that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Have you seen that great light in Christ? Have you seen the wonder and the awesome reality of his salvation? Let's follow the example of those shepherds who in the dead of night suddenly beheld the bright glory of the Lord shining, shining round about them. These angels were greatly afraid at the shining of this light, yet they heeded the counsel of the angels. They went to Bethlehem and saw that thing which came to pass, which the Lord made known to them. The shepherds did not let their fear of, of this light drive them into further darkness. Instead, they rejoiced and sought out that light. Rejoiced in faith, believing that light. And that brought them great joy. And as we come to the Lord's Supper, let us also rejoice, for Jesus is the counselor of joy who enlightens darkened minds. Ephesians 4, 18 tells us that unbelievers have their understanding darkened. Sin darkens our minds. Those who are lost in sin are blind to the destruction that sin brings. How many of us, before we were saved, pursued sin with great zeal? We hated God and we made a mockery of religion. We loved our sin. Our understanding was darkened by the effect of sin on our minds. We were blinded to the horrific reality of our own sinfulness and the damning nature of sin itself. This week, week I, I watched a documentary about a, a volcano blowing up in New Zealand. And it killed some 20 tourists in, in 2019. This volcano was situated on, a, on an island, and some tourists were on a boat just leaving the island. And, and when they saw the, that volcanic eruption, they, 
they, they, they were awe-inspired by it. When they saw those, those dark clouds of ash and steam, they thought, oh, this is, this is kind of cool to see. This is, this is impressive to see. But they were darkened. Their understanding was darkened to the horrific reality of what was happening because there was some 40 tourists that were in the midst of, of that darkened cloud, essentially being burned alive. Tourists who are rejoicing and excited were blind to the consequences, just as we, apart from Christ being our counselor, are blind to the consequences of our own sinfulness. But when we come to Christ, He is our counselor, dispels that darkness. He has come as a light to dispel the darkness of sinful understanding, and this brings great joy to us. He has, as we read in verse 3, increased the nation's joy. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest. Christ, as our counselor, brings us incredible joy. Because he has taken us out of that darkness of, of sin and death and brought us into his, his kingdom of, of everlasting life and peace. Counselor is one who provides knowledge and insight. He takes a problem and provides answers to that problem. Counselors in the time of Isaiah were typically associated with kings as they sought to rule and govern their, their vast and complicated kingdoms. Kings needed counselors. They needed input from others to help them. Yet, striking thing we see from our text is that Jesus is a king. Emmanuel is a king, but he doesn't have counselors around him to help him. He is the counselor. Jesus does not need counselors. He is supremely capable of dealing with the problem of our darkened understanding. He himself is the word. He himself is wisdom. Is it not Jesus and his word that gives us understanding about ourselves? Is it not God's word that, that convicts us, that, that peels back all those layers of our deceitful hearts and shows what's truly there? It doesn't just peel back those layers, not just that, that light of condemnation that's brought, but there's that light of salvation as well. When Christ was on this earth, he, in his wisdom, confounded the scribes and Pharisees. He, with the skill of a surgeon, examined and tried the hearts of men. And he continues to do that today as his word is preached and applied. He continues to point men and women, boys and girls, to himself and to the joy that he brings People come for counsel. They come with distress and sorrow in their heart. But coming to Christ for counsel leads to that increase of joy we read of here. Leads to that rejoicing as in the time of harvest. A time of, of rich bounty. A time of God's gracious provision. 
Those who come to Christ bring their troubles and sorrows, come back with great joy. For he it is who causes men to see that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He died a grievous and sorrowful death. He lived a grievous and sorrowful life so that we, as his people, can have great joy. He, as our counselor, increases our joy. Jesus is also the wonder of light for pervasive darkness. Just as darkness pervades our existence, so sin is pervasive. You think about it, physical darkness is constantly seeking to encroach upon our lives. We spend much time trying to to get out of darkness. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out ways to to make this this sanctuary a lot brighter. But even in our our homes, we're we're constantly changing light bulbs. We're trying to find ways to to add light to our house. And even in our communities, we're we're seeking to get uh, street lights put up. We're we're constantly always trying to, to add light to this world. It's much easier for things to be dark than for them to be light. And in this way, darkness is an excellent analogy for the pervasiveness of our sin. We are by nature conceived and born in sin. And apart from the grace of God, we are inclined to all kinds of wickedness. And unrepentant sin will simply grow and grow. The light of Christ dispels the darkness The light of Christ increases light and causes the multiplication of the nation. We read in verse 3 that you have multiplied the nation. We saw there in verses 1 and 2 that there's these people walking in darkness. They're walking in the shadow of death. They're a land of death and dying. What does Christ's light do? It causes the, the multiplication of the nation as, as light is brought. The light of Christ is far greater than the darkness of sin. And we know this to be true because of the changed reality of those who have embraced Christ as their Savior. Whole characters and persons have been changed. Once walking in sin and now walking in a newness of life. Once walking according to the course of this world. Once being dead in trespasses and sin and and now in Christ being alive rejoicing in God. And we can draw hope in the power of Christ to dispel the pervasive darkness of sin in our lives because of who Jesus is. And our text tells us who Jesus is. It tells us that Jesus is wonderful. Now, in our context, when we hear that word wonderful, we, we think of something that gives us pleasure. You might say when somebody tells you a, a bit of happy news, oh, oh that's wonderful. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. When Scripture uses this word, it is to denote something that is miraculous. For Jesus to be wonderful is for him to, to be a miracle, a true wonder. 
and the wonder of Christ here in our text is that wonder I've, I've already talked about. It's that wonder of the incarnation, the wonder that, that the thrice holy God that we saw in Isaiah 6 would be God with us. They would take on human flesh. And this is indeed the great miracle that he who is the creator and ruler of the universe, he who is transcendent, would take on human flesh. This is the wonder of the incarnation. And with that incarnation, he would bring about a mighty and powerful salvation, a salvation with the power and ability to grow the nation the nation of his people, and dispel that darkness of the shadow of death. Jesus is the everlasting father who destroys the burden of sin. Darkness is often associated with, with being in a state of danger. For example, when we go downtown at night we, we, and we're looking to park our cars, and we, we look for a parking lot that has some light to it. We're not going to want to park our car in, in a dark lot. We're, we're looking for some place where there's light. Darkness brings danger, and so we avoid it. And there's much danger with sin. No matter our sin, it actively harms both ourselves and our neighbor. Ahaz's sin and Judah's sin had very dire consequences for the nation that brought upon them the uh, awful attacks of the Assyrian army. Sin actively harms. And this harm could be compared to a heavy burden that is placed upon our backs. It weighs us down. It bears the awful fruit of guilt, separation from God, depression, sorrow, fear, and even anxiety. It is a grievous yoke for us to bear. That Christ destroys the burdensome of this yoke as our everlasting Father. Now, when our text describes Jesus as the everlasting Father, it's not saying that Jesus is God the Father. And God the Father is Jesus. It's not mixing these, these two persons of the Godhead, as some modalist would argue. It's that speaking to the character of Christ here. Christ is as a father to his people. And what more beautiful place do we see the character of our Father in our text than in verse 4, where we read, For you have broken the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder the rod of his presser as in the day of Midian. Christ, as a father, demolishes the yoke of our sin that bears down upon us, the crushing weight that we could no longer carry. He removed that from us. Isaiah 53, verse 6 tells us that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christ broke that yoke of, of sin bearing down on us, by taking that yoke upon himself and bearing its awful load. And the rod of the oppressor, that rod that keepers of, of livestock use to, to tap the shoulder of their animals, constantly reminding them, no, you're not doing what's right. This is what I want you to do. 
that rod that prods our shoulder, condemning us. Christ has broken that rod. The rod of sin beating down upon us, the rod of the law constantly demanding perfection, has been taken away as Christ has fulfilled all the requirements to satisfy God's righteousness. Now, we're able to live in the freedom of our everlasting Father. And the text says that God has done this as in the days of Midian. This is a reference, I believe, back to, to Gideon. And the great lesson that Gideon learned was, as he was fighting the people of Midian, was that the Lord is the one who wins the conflict. It's the Lord who fights the battle. The Lord told Gideon to dwindle his army down to a mere 300 men. It would ultimately be the Lord who would be victorious. It would be the Lord who would fight for Israel. And so Christ is the sole conqueror and destroyer of the burden and oppression of our great enemies, sin, death, and the devil. Jesus is a prince of peace who burns the instruments of war. We read in Isaiah 9, verse 5, For every warrior's sandals from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. These instruments of war were in a very real sense the instruments of God's judgment upon a sinful people. People of Israel and the people of Judah knew these instruments of war, as these invading armies came against them, as they were engaged in hand-to-hand combat, and had bloody garments because of that. These were the instruments of judgment upon a sinful people. And God wars against sinner. He, in judgment, brings the sword and the spear against them. Lamentations 2 speaks powerfully of the Lord being an archer, shooting arrows at his people. We read in Lamentations 2, verse 4, standing, this is, this is describing the Lord, standing like an enemy. He has bent his bow with his right hand like an adversary. He has slain all who are pleasing to his eye. On the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. Yet Christ, as our Prince of Peace, burns the instruments of war And he burns these instruments because he stood in front of us as the arrows were shot against us. He, in his great love, took upon himself the full brunt of the wrath of God at Golgotha. He was the man who saw affliction by the rod of God's wrath. And so God no longer wars against us in our sinfulness. For our Prince of Peace has has restored our relationship with God the Father. And his reign, this reign of the Prince of Peace is an everlasting reign. And what assurance we can find in this. The instruments of war have, have totally been consumed. And just as Abraham was counted as friend of God, so to all those who trust in God who trust in this Emmanuel and this Prince of Peace and the one who was wonderful, mighty God, 
those who trust in him, they too can be counted as the friends of God, no longer enemies, no longer foes, but friends because of the sacrificial love of Emmanuel. And it is this Emmanuel who we remember as we come to the Lord's table this morning, as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, Let us remember that to us a son indeed has been given. A son has been given to us. We might believe on his name and be saved from all our sins. And this son who has been given is a mighty God who has dispelled the darkness of judgment. He is a counselor of joy, has enlightened our minds to the gospel. He has a wonder causes the multiplication of his people and the growth and spread of the gospel light. He has everlasting father has demolished a burdensome yoke of our sin and oppression. And he, as a prince of peace, has burned the instruments of war. And so as we come to the table this morning, let us remember and believe this. As we eat of that bread and a drink of that cup, sacramental symbols of the body and blood of our Savior. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you rejoicing that you sent your Son to be God with us and have so brought us into that marvelous light. Lord, we pray that we would know this light, that we would seek this light with diligence, that we would know that you, that your Son is wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace.